Salofalava, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. I think the least bad option is releasing. Experts weigh in on Japan's nuclear wastewater plans. Also. Right at the moment, we have identified 3.5 million. Fiji Rugby Union are up to its eyeballs and debts. And later on, we hear more about PNG's big security deal with the US. Experts from New Zealand, Australia and Taiwan have weighed in on the controversial Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant decommissioning project. Lydia Lewis has been covering the developments. They told the media at an online panel discussion hosted by the New Zealand Science Media Centre, Japan has good intentions. They say as long as the water is tested before it's released, the operation will be safe. Two even went as far as saying they would take a sip of the treated water. I would drink the water. I mean, it's like going down to the beach and swallowing a mouthful of water when you're swimming. It's salt water. I prefer they desalinate it before I drink it. Would I eat the fish? Yes, I would. The water has been used to cool the melted reactor of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, which was damaged 12 years ago following a powerful earthquake and massive tsunami. But after filling more than 1,000 tanks, they are running out of storage space. Japan says it will treat the water to the point where it will no longer be harmful. It will also dilute the water and then release it into the Pacific Ocean. University of Auckland Physics senior lecturer Dr David Krofchek, who specialises in nuclear physics and natural radiation from the environment, says out of all the options, releasing it into the ocean is best. That's probably the least bad option. Not that it's a bad option because the dose or the amount of tritium being diluted is so small, but I think the least bad option is releasing. Ocean circulation modeler and researcher in Taiwan, Professor Chao Rong Wu, told the media he predicts the water from Fukushima will take around two to three years to reach North America one year to get to Taiwan and sweep right across the Pacific. No release date has been set, but Adelaide University School of Physics, Chemistry and Earth Sciences Associate Professor Tony Hooker says what we do know is... The water is going to be released in summer 2023. The release is imminent. That will be a decision for Japanese government. Ultimately, they can make that decision. They don't need to rely on the International Atomic Energy Agency or any other agency. He says as long as it's only tritium and carbon-14 that's released, and at very small quantities, he's confident it will be safe. Dr Krofchek agrees. I'm very comfortable with with releasing it as long as we can guarantee, the Royal Science Society in the world can guarantee that uh, the nasty strontium cesium iodine cobalt 60 can has been removed and that can be done they will be removed by an advanced liquid processing system or alps dr hooker explains well they'll just be uh, removed and and stored as as radioactive waste yeah so most of the alps process is using like a keolite um zeolite sorry clay um and which is very absorbent 
uh, once once the, the water has gone through that. The radionuclides are bound uh, to um, a, a solid. You can dry that out and store it as radioactive waste. There is still a lot of uncertainty, especially across the Blue Pacific. Japan is in talks with the Pacific Islands Forum and providing data to their independent expert panel to analyse, which Dr Hooker is a part of. He acknowledged those who want to end nuclear waste dumping, which he says already happens all around the world. Even though I don't have a problem with disposing of the tritium from this nuclear power plant into the sea, probably is coming to a point in, you know, environmental mantra of should we be dumping everything into the sea, you know, like sewerage water and all of these other things. And so whilst there's no issues from a radiation safety perspective about putting this radiation into the sea, should there be some level of discussion or intensive research about how we can minimise disposing into the sea into the future? Until then, Japan has started testing some of its discharge facilities. The chair of the new Fiji Rugby Union Trustees Board, Peter Maisie, says they've inherited an organisation with staggering debt levels and legal complications around its status that need to be rectified before the new year. While the Fijian Rugby National Governing Body had reported a debt of $1.7 million in its audited financial report for 2022, it's now being revealed that the level of debt is much higher, at $3.5 million. This has all come to light after members of the Fiji National Women's Side, the Fijiana, raised their frustrations and disappointment at the non-payment of allowances. Trustees Board Chairman Peter Maisie spoke with RNZ Pacific Senior Sports Journalist Elias Satora on Tuesday. I've just read in an interview where you've stated that the FRU uh, right now is in debt in excess of uh, three million at least. Would you be able to to share that with us? Yes, I mean when we came in, we knew because we'd seen the annual report as at December last year, which in the initial audited report showed a debt of about one point seven million. But when we came in and went through everything, we discovered that that debt was in fact a lot higher. And so currently the auditors are re-looking at that, re-looking at their audit report. Um, but we, right at the moment, we have identified $3.5 million. The debt, you know, how long has that debt been with FRU? It's been there for a long time. It, it, well, it's, I think it's easier to say that it's a debt that's been ongoing. So as money came in, they cleared a bit and it, so it was maintained. But it goes back two, three years, yes. With, uh, with uh, the team uh, of trustees in there now, what is the, 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 important, uh, the important work or issue that is, is paramount in the work that you are doing right now? Oh, the most important thing is trying to get everything stabilised. While we have to handle the debt, we also have an obligation to our national teams, to our sponsors, to ensure that our tournaments continue, that uh, we, our World Cup team is, uh, you know, sort of correctly funded, and that's been done through sponsorship, and that that money is in place separately to the debt, the operational debt that exists. So that's a big a big challenge in itself. Uh, we are going to rely on a lot of assistance in trying to clear that debt. And, um, of course, we are going to be looking for more sponsorship to help us. The other challenge is that we are tasked to set rugby union in Fiji on a new path. 
it has to become a properly legal body and as such uh, we're working with World Rugby and the International Olympic Com- Committee through Oceania Olympics and we just have to make sure that we restructure the organisation to be a professional one. It is a business that has over 23 million in income, which for, for a small island country is pretty good, but we have to make sure that we can continue, and that is what we're working on. With um, uh, the um, the um, discussions that you've had with uh, Fijiana, the Fijiana players over their concerns, uh, yes. when... You know, when does the the payment, when can that payment be made? What's the process that's being made now and what solutions are you working on going forward? Well, the, uh, the trustees met yesterday. It was only on Friday we released that the girls were right type thing. Um, and on yesterday we went through all of their, uh, well, their main financial concerns. We went through them and um, the allowances for the, and found outstanding allowances for the World Cup in last year, which was, I think, in October in New Zealand. Uh, we also found the monies owed from that event and uh, as well as the Oceania tournament allowances that has been spoken about. So in total, we have agreed and the trustees passed the motion that the, we have to pay the players 172000 in outstanding. Now, we are, the arrangement on paying of that, well, that's going to take a, a little while longer. We've got to find that funding. But apart from that, we are, have arranged to have meetings with the girls over it. And we are hopeful to clear it very quickly. Uh, but we're meeting the girls on the return of the captain, who is currently overseas, and she's back next week. So then we'll be letting the girls announce that they've got their money or are about to get it. They can t- we'll work together on it. I wouldn't be... I- I wouldn't want to be in your shoes right now. You've walked into a lot of mess at the FRU. Uh, you've been given time uh, till till January. How 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 are things looking? Uh, you know, with the unions out there uh, and uh, the stakeholders. How how are things looking at at this time? Well, uh, no, we we set a plan of action for um, so we knew exactly what we had to do when, and as such, we're working on that um, a time a time scale. And uh, we we hope that we'll be able to re- present everything to the unions towards the end of the year. But the meeting, uh, we have to have a meeting with all the unions. It will happen next month. Uh, we need to find out, you know, what their input is to the new look Fiji Rugby Union and to work out um, how we can work together better uh, because they are the main players in Fiji Rugby Union as a business and so we have to be in partnership. But until we knew what we'd found, we had nothing to take to the unions. Just So that's why we're now ready to see the unions next month. Despite the FIU's financial woes, Peter Mazie says the participation of the men's national team, the Flying Fijians and the upcoming Rugby World Cup in France, is secure thanks to their major sponsor, Fiji Water. We've been hearing this week about the new security deal Papua New Guinea has signed with the United States. University of PNG political scientist, currently studying at the Australian National University, Michael Kabuni, spoke about the naivety of some in believing that the deal was not about a military build-up. He said PNG politicians couldn't say no to American dollars. Mr Kabuni also referred to the growing significance of Manus Island, which will have an American presence at both its airport and naval base, 
but that China is also building wharves there. Don Wiseman asked Mr Kabuni about the significance of China's presence. Now, we had State Department representatives through this country last week, and they said uh, the U.S. is perfectly happy with uh, Chinese presence in the Pacific, as long as they follow the rules, of course. What do you make of that? I'm not sure of that. Uh, in 2018, during the APEC meeting in PNC, the United States was represented by Mike Pence, the U.S. vice president at the time. He didn't seem very happy. And he made an argument of playing by the rules and China not playing by the rules. China giving loans to poor countries knowing that they don't have the capacity to repay. And once they don't repay, China moves in and swaps the payment for the loans by securing strategic marine ports. Hasn't happened in Papua New Guinea yet, hasn't happened anywhere in the Pacific, but it did happen in other countries like like Pakistan. So, yeah, that's, you know, it's diplomatic to say that, but the accents don't, don't align with claims, claims like United States is happy with China in the Pacific. There's been some criticism in PNG of these deals. Do you think most of the people will go along with it? Well, the deal is signed already. So, like I said, because of the money that's involved in this deal, uh, I don't know how much money PNG will actually get out of it, the 450 or 500 million USD. But it's very attractive for the government. And uh, PNG government is not known for being responsive to concerns or protests from the people. They even used guns. 2016, police opened fire on a few students. Uh, none was held accountable. Uh, no investigations into that. Uh, there's a history of police actually killing students. Uh, in the 19, late 1990s, three students were killed. Uh, none was brought to justice for that. So there is an uh, increase in protests. And this is something I, I try to get across to, you know, commentators who, who report on PNG, PNG politics and the involvement of the United States in the, in the Pacific, especially in PNG, is that there's an underlying resentment against the United States that's often understated. There is a huge resentment across Papua New Guinea, especially with young people. And this was expressed through uh, the protest that, that leading up to the DCA signing. Six universities protested against that, even though the you know unions and associations, public sector and commentators uh, you know complained about it. It was the students who protested against this deal. They're becoming more critical. The young people are becoming more critical. And you know the wise thing for the United States would have been to not sign the deal at that point and let Papua New Guinea deal with its internal issues, conduct more awareness, talk about the need of securing the borders, allow for more debate before you sign this. Because after this deal is signed, the perspective in Papua New Guinea is that the United States will push through any deal it wants with any Pacific Island country, and Papua New Guinea in particular irrespective of concerns coming from the citizens. And United States is misled to believe that PNG politicians always represent the views of their people because they are the lawmakers, that whatever deal they sign the nation to is representative of the views of the people because the people voted them. First of all, we know elections are not conducted based on policies. Papua New Guineans don't vote. MPs based on policies. So when MPs get into parliament and sign deals like these. These are deals they never campaigned in elections. I mean, to be concise, 
no PNG political party during the elections in 2022 has actually talked about foreign relations and how they would conduct deals like this and foreign affairs. They don't. Uh, they go in and they talk about delivering roads and they, you know, sponsor land flaps and, and alcohol and get all these things to attract votes. So when they get into parliament and make, make these deals and say, oh, we are the mandated group of Papua New Guineans to make this deal because we've been voted in by the people. That's misleading. And, and that's one of the things that as a responsible, developed, democratic country is to understand the dynamics of countries like Papua New Guinea. That when you are dealing with PNG politicians, you are basically dealing with the elites that have no connection to the grassroots or the population that they represent. One of the aspects of it, supposedly, is that the Americans are going to help PNG overcome its issues with election violence. Can you see mm. that? Happening? I don't see how that is possible, apart from heavily funding the military and the police. Well, let's put it this way. If you really wanted to help PNG elections, then funding common role updates uh, earlier, Throughout the years, whatever process that needs to go in be- in the five years before elections, that's where you come in. I don't know the specifics of what they mean by that, but what I'm suspecting might happen, and this happens all the time, like I said, PNG politics is a bit different. They wait until the last minute, like what happened uh, last time, uh, try to buy armored vehicles to go in and then pro- secure the ballot boxes. Well, it didn't happen, first of all. There are more guns in the hands of warlords in PNG than uh, in the hands of military or police. And the temptation is, therefore, to equip the PNG defense force and military uh, to secure the election. That's a really bad way of approaching uh, this issue because police brutality in PNG is, is, is really bad. So is the discipline of PNG uh, defense force and putting guns in the hands of these two undisciplined forces. It's a really bad idea. So if they really want to help PNG with the elections and election problems, it has to be now. It has to be issues around common role updates, census, and funding the electoral commission, training the officials. These things, these non-military interventions before the election comes around in 2027. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. You can also download us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts from. So from myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, so far so far.